Cancer journey is unique for everyone. It is time to figure out our new normal and there's no one size fits all manual. Welcome to the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 20 of the Cancer Cliff Notes with Jen Cochran. My guest this week is Debbie Jo Wheatley. Debbie Jo works as an interior designer by transforming furnishings or complete renovations. She's also passionate about using her design expertise to help seniors age in place safely with beauty and function. 30 years prior to starting her design firm, Debbie Jo worked as a nurse in orthopedics and oncology, and the need to see those aging in a safe and beautiful environment really became her mission. She was happily married for almost 27 years. Today, she's here to talk about her journey, helping to care for her husband who passed away from leukemia after a 20-year battle. Welcome, Debbie Jo. Thank you for being here with me today. I'm really looking forward to you sharing your story and the story of your journey as a caregiver as your husband was navigating leukemia for 20 years. Correct. So welcome. So happy to have you here. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me. I remember we talked the one day, you know, because knowing what you had gone through and everybody had gone through, and I mentioned about my husband who was diagnosed in 1991 with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. You never want to say you have a good cancer or you have anything, a good leukemia, but of all the ones he had to deal with, that had the most hope. They still gave him 10 to 12 years max, still not enough time, but that's okay. We were going to fight it, and we had a great doctor that was going to help us. He was with us the whole journey of 20 years, which is unusual because sometimes they move, or they're getting older and they stop practice. We were very fortunate to have him with us because he was very innovative in giving us different tools and stuff. But when he was first diagnosed in 91, how they treated CLO was very aggressively. It was symptomatic, spleen was enlarged, you know, everything was symptomatic for him. But they gave him a very aggressive chemo. So being the caregiver and also being a nurse, it's kind of hard because you put on your nurse hat and then you forget the white hat, then you put on the white hat and then you start to panic. So I had to kind of keep like half a hat on each side to try to navigate this with him. His attitude was, let's get started. We're going to beat this. You know, I'm glad I know what it is now. Let's just get going, which was very helpful to me because it made it less scary for me to go forward, even though I have dealt and have worked in hospice and all. When it's your own, it's very different. So he got started and he dealt well with the chemo. It was the steroids and everything else that he was getting. And he, during this time, he developed shingles. He developed Bell's palsy, which he recovered from very easily. You know, it's not just about the CLL that you're looking at. You're looking at everything else that's happening. You know, people say, well, he looks good. Well, he looked great the whole time. And I'm sorry, when he passed away, he still looked good. I mean, it was it was just him. That was just him. And I think it was his attitude and everything else that went on. So we had probably, it was nine, we were into nine, almost 10 years on and off chemo. He had probably had about five rounds about that time. So it was kind of like every other year we're going through about nine to 12 months of chemo. And they kept changing the drugs because things kept changing. One of the things they don't tell us about is when you're on different chemos and stuff that you take a lot of steroids because what you break down, you have to build up. And steroids are a wonderful thing. However, excessive amount of steroids over time caused him to have a bipolar 2 
episode that took us probably orange. I should say took me because nobody would listen to me when I say, uh, it's not my husband. You know, you brought back somebody else before we found somebody that listened to us because I kept saying to the doctor, I said, you know, okay, people go through chemo and people have all this stuff and they either, and I'm sorry to say they either pass away or they graduate and they don't have to take it anymore. I said, has anybody ever done a study on consistent, very harsh drugs going into your system, especially the IV, and then all the steroids that you're on. And it was kind of an awakening call for his oncologist because he got a little mad at me and said, are you questioning our treatment of your husband? And I said, no, I'm just saying that, have you ever noticed this? So bless his heart, getting through the chemo, you know, we traveled in between, we did all these things, but when this hit, it hit hard. I had thought I had lost him then. And it took probably a good year and a half to get him turned around. But because of that, he now could not get the steroids. So what does this mean? with chemo. Well, he still had to get the chemo, but we couldn't give him anything to build him up. So it brought his immune system down even more. So we had to be very, very careful, proud, everything, you know, what we were in and all. After he was doing better with that, it was kind of like something flipped. And for about three years, he was doing fine. His lymphocyte count was going up, showing it was still there, but it wasn't active. I remember his doctor seeing me at the hospital where I worked going, well, this is pretty interesting because I, I hate to tell you this, but he really shouldn't be alive right now. And I go, I know. What would you do? He goes, I really don't know. Well, then it was about three years before he passed that everything came to a full head again. And he had to start having chemo. The problem was is that the chemos were no longer working. And every time they tried something new, he had horrible reactions to them. Or... One of the fun parts was he was now on Medicare and we had to prove why he should take this drug. So thank God the doctor was the way he was and wrote long letters and stuff. And they're like, well, this is not approved for CLL. He goes, it's not approved, but it's shown the work. And this man has been on every drug under the sun. So we need to try something else. So they finally approved one of the drugs. But then he was also on IVIG monthly because he kept having chronic infections, sinus infections, and he had pretty much run the game of every antibiotic. So nobody thinks of a sinus infection related to chemo, but if everything's down, you're a mess and something's going to happen. So they started the IVIG when he went on Medicare. Every year, the doctor had to write a letter about why he would get the IVIG. And it was just always a fight. It's like, just give it to him. I mean, it's like, it's not that difficult, people. But it, you know, it just shows you our system with our insurances and everything that if they're not going to approve it, we were looking at, you know, tens of thousands of dollars out of pocket every month. And he said, he goes, I'm not doing that. I mean, I would have done anything, but I agreed with him. That's ridiculous. It is. And there's people out there that can't even afford the hundreds of dollars a month. So if they're denied a drug that might save their life or might make their life a little bit better, it's very frustrating. But then, Two years before he passed, he started having probably bi-weekly blood transfusions and platelet transfusions. And one day, he got an errant white cell and a blood transfusion. And that night, he ended up starting to have like very strange, I don't want to say hallucinations, but he wasn't making sense. And I thought, oh, dear God, we're starting over again. 
with the whole bipolar. What it was, he wasn't getting oxygen to his brain. And his fever went up to 103. I ran him into the hospital and they finally said, we think it was a reaction to blood transfusion, which he had never had before. And, and his doctor said, I think there was an errant white cell or something happened, but you know, this is what went up. He stayed overnight. We finally got a room at 5 a.m. as you know, or anybody going through these journeys know, you spend a lot of time in the ER hanging out at vending machines. So we got him to a room about five. He told me to go home and he said, you know, listen, I'll, I'll call you later, but the doc won't be in for a bit. So I think I woke up about 9.30 and I called him. He said, okay, doc was in, I'm spending the night. Just come in around when you get awake and, you know, just bring some stuff for you. It's like, okay. So about 1130, I said, let me just call him, see if there's anything else you need. Rapid response team from the hospital answered the phone. I'm like, you know, I'm trying to get him. And they're like, we're taking him to ICU two. His blood pressure is bottomed out. His O2 stats are down 70. Got him on oxygen. We're running him down now. We'll meet you in ICU two. So I live in Centerville and this is at Fairfax. And I drove very fast down 66. So I was lucky there were no cops, but I didn't care. They could have chased me there. I said, like, give me an ICU two. Give me all the tickets you want. And I get there and he was doing okay through the day, kept having problems with breathing like every few hours. And it turns out he was having a buildup of fluid around his lungs and around his heart. They ended up giving him Lasix. And then he started going down again and having all these issues with his O2 stats dropping, blood pressure going up. And Dr. Romero came in and he's like, I, he was, I don't know what's happening. You know, I thought we had him stabilized. Well, they sent him to ICU-1 once he was stabilized. That's a place where I knew the PCD who worked there, the director. I used to work with her. She used to be my boss. So I felt very comforted in knowing a couple of the nurses were there. He ended up going in. They said, we'll probably keep him overnight, and then we're sending him back up to oncology. I'm like, okay. Well, I called the next morning. I went home about midnight. I called night shift, and they're like, nobody told you? And I said, what? He had been intubated because his O2 stats dropped so bad they couldn't get him breathing. So for 10 days on and off, he was on oxygen and intubated and everything, and his system was failing all the way down the line. It just was like you could look and see his lungs filling, you could see everything. I was lucky, and a number of my friends have told me that, the fact that I know people there, I know the doctors there, so they were, they were not that they don't fight, but personally they knew me and they're like, we're fixing this, this is not going to happen. I knew it was not the leukemia. I knew it was some sort of crisis. Believe it or not, he came out of this. But during that time, they had to give him high doses of steroids to keep some of the fluids and the swelling and build up stuff. So I freaked out, but we got it going. So we started giving him the meds he had taken to decrease the psychosis with the steroids during the time via IV as well. So we were lucky. We were very lucky to get this situated. He came home the day before his birthday, and it was his 70th birthday. But he came home, and on the way home, he wanted to stop at Five Guys and get French fries. <laughs> and we did, and we came home, and people came over. My brother had flown up. People were in, and they come to the house, and Howard and I are sitting on the back porch eating French fries and having a beer. So, you know, there is humor in cancer, too. After a while, it's like, okay, we're feeling good now, party. And then it, we did a lot of family things. We were trying really hard to continue to make the memories. His third grandchild was born during then, so he had a chance to meet all of them. But then probably the six months before he passed, I saw him going down. It was at Christmas, and I remember telling my brother that. 
Now, also a couple weeks prior, I was diagnosed with melanoma. The F-bomb came out because I'm like, I don't have time for this. And he was scared because he was afraid of leaving me with a diagnosis of cancer. You could tell he was getting tired, but he was still present. He was present when he could be. He lived a life of grace and all. But I think what people don't see is the caregiver being there for all of that. It's hard. It's really hard to see somebody hurting and you're trying to take care of yourself and you're not doing a very good job of it, but you don't know what else to do. You're just kind of stuck and you're just trying to keep up a brave, strong face in everything. And I think the hardest part was the 20 years I was with him. I was not there when he passed. He had told me to go home that night. And I probably went home, I think it was about 10 or 11. And I called him when I got home. And he just said, I love you. And he said, I, I think I'm going to move for this or something. He wasn't eating. He goes, I'd like mashed potatoes. So I said, okay, I'll make him mashed potatoes and bring them. When I talked to him on the phone before he was going to go to sleep, he said, I love you. By the way, bring me peas to go with the mashed potatoes. And I said, okay. So I like had a little can. I took the can of peas down. And I got the call that he had passed. And it was just, it was so devastating to me as a caregiver because I felt he was alone. And I've learned since then, of course, and as a nurse, I tell people that all the time, that when people pass, they sometimes don't want you there because they don't want you hurting. They, they want to go and not have you feel the devastation, which I don't think anybody realizes is the same whether you're there or not. His last thought, the nurse said, live of you, he called your name. Sorry. It was a journey. I was fortunate that he had a great attitude, looked at the bright side of things, and his feeling was always like, somebody else is much worse than me. He goes, there, there are people that are having it harder than I am. And I think that's what kept me going in that. And as a nurse, when I worked at the hospital, and I would put in pick lines, and I would go into these oncology patients, and I remember sitting there and talking to the patient and their caregiver, loved one, whoever it might be, I would tell the patient all the time, I said, there's going to be a lot of people looking out for you. I said, you are going to be the center of attention. I said, but nobody's going to be looking out for them. So there's going to come moments when they need to get away. And I said, and they are not, it's not because they hate you. It's not because they're tired of all of this, but they just a minute to breathe and to feel just a little normalcy again I said you know I said you you're always going to have somebody there I said they are not and then I would tell the caregivers which I didn't do was if you need something just ask you've got to ask that's so yeah. important yeah and I just didn't and, and there were a couple times though I did and it was rebuffed. It's like, I can't do it. And I was like, and all of a sudden it was like a shock. I was like, my God, I've, it's been like 19 years and I've asked for nothing. It's like, seriously? And then I just had to sit there and go, okay, people are doing the best they can do. I can't, I can't be that person. I, I said, the sad part is that someday they'll figure it out and it'll be when they're in that situation too. And then they're going to realize, and I hate for them to realize then, you know, it's just, it's not people being, being, I don't think it's people being thoughtless. I think it's people just not thinking, you know, that everything's always going to be okay. And it's right. not. That is very true. When you embarked on this cancer journey, that was back in 1991, yeah. which blood cancers, 
thankfully through a lot of the work that you have done, I think, through supporting LLS and all the fundraising and awareness of LLS does great work, Leukemia Lymphoma Society. There have been tremendous advancements over the last 30 plus years. So in 1991, the odds were fairly bleak. Yeah, the problem with CLL is normally that was noted in people older. They were in their 60s, 70s. He was 51. And so in their 60s and 70s, if they lived, lived 10 to 12 years, they didn't know that they were dying because of old age. Right. You know, maybe, it wasn't the, maybe it wasn't the leukemia. But then what was unusual that younger people were starting to get it in their 40s, which they still don't know why. However... With the advancement of all the work and research done on CLL, 92% of those with CLL live fairly decent lives. That's huge. That is a huge percentage. And they're doing things without traditional chemo. It's sometimes it's more of an antibody type of a drug. You still can have the reactions like you do to a blood transfusion, you know, if it's, if it's off or whatever, but it's not as caustic as the chemo. And which is wonderful. I mean, it's so good to hear. Yeah, the targeted treatments, I think, across cancer have just come so far. And like with the work that you've done with Leukemia Lymphoma Society and fundraising and funding research, and that's so important. So, so important. Thank you. I know that's the 35,000 foot view of 20 years of being a caregiver. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the, some of the components of that. We'll be right back. Enjoying the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast? Come on over to the Facebook group where you can join the community and participate in the conversation during the week. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Debbie Jo Wheatley. The first thing that I want to talk about, you mentioned really briefly about your husband's diagnosis of bipolar 2. As a patient, now I heard a lot, oh, that's normal. Or the flip side of that, oh, that's not normal. That must be something else. That must be something that you came to this with. To which I would be like, nope, never had that before. I think it's you. You know, We did this thing and then I had this result. And then we did the thing again and I had the same result I think it's the thing yes (laughs) like I I don't think it's me I think it's you right and I know you experienced some of that to get to a point where the bipolar was actually diagnosed and I know one of the things that you were told early on was maybe this is just who he was and you weren't aware which this was probably 20 years into, you know, 12 years into your relationship, he was diagnosed. And then this was another, you know, 10 years later. So when you hit the 22 year mark, you kind of know who someone is. Just a little bit, just slightly. The thing that brought it on is one of the smallest things. I think I mentioned he had had different fevers, unrelated fevers. They didn't know what was going on. They put him on antibiotics and all this. Well, his doctor was out of town and the doctor that was covering, and he was very right and said, let's try this. And they gave him by accident. About three, four hours after he took it, he was acting really strange. I mean, even where he, what the way he was sitting, I was like, it was not him. And I said to him, I said, are you okay? He goes, I think I'm fine. But it was very, it was very strange. He went upstairs and he was laying down, but he wasn't really in bed. And I went up to check on him and he sat up and he said, I figured it out. And I said, what's that? He goes, I'm pretty sure I'm God. And I went, 
you got to be kidding me, you know? And I thought he was joking. And he goes, no, he goes, I don't think I'm the God. He goes, but I'm pretty sure I'm a God because, well, else am I here? I went, oh, crap. So I called the doctor. I actually took him in an ambulance because I was too afraid to take him in the car because I really didn't know what was going on. My husband was very mild-mannered. Thank God with the bipolar, too. Uh, his manic was not as manic as it could have been. And thank goodness it was a little bit under control. But it wasn't him. I mean, his affect was different. Everything was different. So we get to the ER. We get a room for him. And it turns out that Biaxin in some instances, can cause psychosis. <laughs> Yay! You know, it's like, come on, you know, we don't have enough problems as it is. So the doctor came in, they stopped, of course, stopped the Biaxin, and it was taking him a while to get out of it. He happened to mention to the doctor, he's at that between that 10-12 mark when he should have died. And he said, I think this might have set something off, too, with the drug. So he said, it'd probably be good to see a therapist. And so he was going to the therapist and the therapist he went to see, because that's who the insurance that he should see, gave him Ativan. Well, stuff started getting worse. We learned later that Ativan exacerbates, by, I don't know if it's all bipolar, but bipolar too, some of the problems. It does not help. So it was supposed to help him sleep, didn't do anything. From my end, I'm like, okay, we got to get some help. And so we would, we would go see a psychiatrist, his, his oncologist said, go see this person. So we'd go to see them. And the doctor would look at me, he goes, now, Mrs. Wheatley, he goes, you need to relax because this is not unusual. He's probably the way he's always been. And I'm like, yeah, no, this is not him. I said, you don't understand. I said, his eyes aren't the same. I said, I can look at his eyes and know his eyes are not the same. Well, I guess we'll just have to learn to live with this or work with this. And I was like, sorry, I almost said the F word. (laughs) So we go home and he's kind of going along. Everything was on tenterhooks. I mean, it really was. I was ready to bowl. I didn't know what to do. And then his girls would come over and I finally was like, I have to go spend a night with a friend. Somebody needs to come over and just stay here. And so one of the girls every so often would come over and spend the night so I could get away just I just want to go someplace sleep because I was exhausted and I at that point didn't know what to do so I finally encouraged his oncologist to have him go in for three-day observation and I'm going to say it because it's horrible but I don't care Fairfax Hospital in their psych center is probably and I've worked there going up to start IVs well for the first 24 hours they did nothing they didn't even see him during that time did they the doctor that was there didn't see him until 30 hours after he was admitted and I'm like and I was getting this because I'm like listen we got three days here I gotta have somebody see him so we know what's happening so we can further treat him. so then the psychiatrist finally comes in because I called I got mad and they called the head of psychiatry and he came down he goes, oh, they'll be here soon. He goes, but most people like it here because it's really nice. I said, it's not nice. It's a hole. I said, I want to get him, somebody talking to him and I want out of here. I'm telling you right now. The doctor came in and he talked to him for a little bit, then went away. And then the third day when he's going to discharge him, comes in, goes, hey, well, we're going to discharge him. I go, well, you know, they got him some other drugs. And he goes, well, Valium is time to keep him calm. I said, well, he's not terribly uncalm. I said, calm is not the problem. The man is not himself. I asked the doctor that was assigned, whatever. I said, well, do we follow up? He goes, well, check with your insurance. That was the answer I got. I'm like, fine. I said, we're out of here. So I went back and I called this oncologist again. I'm like, this is ridiculous. We got nowhere with this. We need to see somebody. So he came up with another name for us. Since we got in like a week later, we go in, doctor's talking to him and he goes, 
well, Mrs. Wheatley, he goes, it's his age. I think it's organic brain syndrome. I'm like, it is not OBS. I said, what the hell do you mean it's his age? I go, he does not wake up the next day or actually within hours. And all of a sudden the man is not my husband. I said, he, it was kind of like invasion of the body snatchers. I swear to God, it was like a pod. It was exactly like that. The eyes were like that and everything. I was like, oh my God, that didn't work. So then sadly, my grandfather passed away. He came down to Florida and he loved my grandfather. I could tell he was really really getting hyper at times or really depressed at times. And I didn't really want him there, but I didn't know what else to do because he did love him. The flight home on the airplane was horrible because he was just, he was sitting like one up from me and he was just, I said, you know, you're going to get us kicked off this plane or something. I said, you need to settle. You need to just relax. We're going to be home soon. We get home. I finally called the doctor again. I'm like, listen, I said, I want him coming in for tests. I don't care what you have to do. Spinal tap. I mean, nothing's been done. Check his cerebral spinal fluid. Sure, there's no infection. Make sure nothing's going on. Do everything you can to check whatever we need to check. And so he agreed. He put him in. Because there are two days and the resident came in to me and he said, well, I'm going to talk to him alone for a bit. And I said, okay. So he, they talked for a while and then he called me by myself. He goes, okay. He goes, well, he goes, here's the problem. You're dealing with the doctors too much. He wants to just be left alone. And this is what's causing his anxiety. And I'm like, and they gave you a degree for that. Oh my God. We left. I went home and I actually packed my clothes because I thought, is nobody else seeing this but me? And then I thought, I was like, are you doing this to me? I was like, you know, my husband never did anything like that to me, but you were starting to feel that. I felt like I was in this horrible Stephen King novel. I swear to God. I came home and I packed, but I left the suitcase open and I left it out of the way. And he goes, please don't leave. I'm like, we got to figure this out. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if that shook him or what happened, but then he stopped talking. And all he would say is one, two, one, two, one, two. And I think that was his way of calming himself in some way. And the only relief I ended up getting was calling the psych hotline. And I talked to somebody, I told him what was going on. I said, you've got to get somebody over here. I said, he go, well, we'll take them to Fairfax ER. I said, no, I'm not going back there. I've been there four times. Nobody's doing anything. Something's wrong. They came out and they couldn't even diagnose it. They're looking going, oh my God. They go, we hate to take them in because I'm afraid I'll be scared. And I said, you've got to do something. And they said, okay, we will. Sadly, they have to send police. That made me sad for him because I just hoped he wasn't scared. He was isolated that night when he was there. And they said, we have a psychiatric appointment with you with the doctor at 9.30 tomorrow morning to be there. I'm like, yeah. I flew down from Centerville to Mount Vernon is where he was. After 45 minutes with the psychiatrist, he looks at me. He goes, I know exactly what's wrong. Please, please tell me something that actually sounds reasonable. It is very much a bipolar type episode. We call it bipolar two. It's brought on by his disease and his medications. He said when he has been on and off the steroids, he's all the way up and then he's all the way down and he crashes. You know, you're on 60 some milligrams. At first he was on 180 milligrams a day for five days and off. I mean, boom, you know, instant crash. And then we had finally talked them into tapering it at the end, but it was just ridiculous. He said, and his counts are up, they're down, they're up, they're down. So his body's going through all this. He said, when he took the Biaxin, he said, because of the fact it can cause psychosis, he said it just broke him and he lost all ability to cope. This was his only way to cope. And I looked at him, I'm like, seriously, he goes, but we can fix this. And I just looked at him and I burst into, t I said, seriously? And he goes, yes. He goes, it's going to take time. He said, but, you know, normally for bipolar, we put them on lithium. 
He goes, he will probably not have to take it forever, probably a year at most, but we'll monitor him. And then I want him to have Zyprexa at night. We'll start with a high dose and then we'll lower it and taper it down. He said, but that will calm his thoughts and help him sleep. He had to agree to stay there. He had to sign himself in. And my husband, God bless them, as bad as things were right then and everything going on, he said, all right. I said, will you do it for me? And he said, yeah, I'll do it for you. He goes, will you come see me every day? I said, I will come see you every day. Don't worry about that. He went through it. He was there two weeks. And he still wasn't quite himself, but it was much better. The problem was, is anybody that knows anybody who is bipolar and is on lithium, they miss the highs. You know, it's, it's just, you just sort of level. He was on the Zyprexa. We still had to see the psychiatrist quite often. And he kept lowering the Zyprexa and eventually took him off the lithium. And he said, he goes, you don't actually need the Zyprexa. And Howard said, will it hurt me to take it? He goes, just like five milligrams. He goes, actually, no, it'll help you sleep. And he's like, I'm taking this. He goes, there's no way I want this happening again. Sadly, it did right around Christmas time when we were in Florida, but we were able to reverse it pretty quickly. It took probably a year and a half before I actually heard him laugh again, and I saw his eyes were his eyes again. I mean, it really took a bit. During that time still, I was just holding my breath till it got to February. I think my friend was going on a business trip and said, hey, I've got the hotel rooms you want to go. And Howard said, just go. And I just had to leave. I just needed days away. It was hard on our friends and family because they didn't understand. And when I kept saying, I got to leave, I got to leave. They're all like, well, you can't leave him. He has leukemia. That's the least of my problems at this point right now. <laughs> you know, the leukemia is not a problem. This is the problem. And I do remember when he finally was more himself saying his oncologist, he said, thank you so much for sticking by me and making sure I was okay. And the doctor looked at him. He said, don't thank me. He goes, thank your wife. He said, because if she hadn't been there, I don't know how much more I could have done to help. It was her pushing. Now, granted, we got that all done and seen a doctor four months after the start of it. But what about somebody that doesn't know what's happening or doesn't have the tenacity to get out there and fight? And to me, as a caregiver, that's what you have to do is you have to fight for them because it can all get swept under the rug, you know, to hear, oh, it's organic brain syndrome. Oh, he's always had this. Oh, he just needs some time. You need to leave him alone. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, I just wanted to slap every one of them. And this doctor told me what was wrong. I was so grateful only because now we have something to fight for. Now we have something we can do. We aren't just floundering because I said that was a horrible way to live. And there was no way I could stick it out. I really couldn't. I did, but I was getting really close to the breaking point. And it still took me in that time a while to rebuild our relationship back to husband and wife, only because I was so traumatized by it because I didn't have time to be upset. I didn't have time to cry and this and that. I was just really trying to get through day by day, just have us still be alive at the end of it. It was worse than all the chemo. I think it was worse than actually losing him because that to lose him that way, to not be able to talk to him and say goodbye, that was probably the hardest part of the whole journey, that right there that I'm still alive to talk about it is absolutely amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think that that's one of the things that we don't talk about. You get the word, you have cancer, and no one says, and now we need to find you a therapist because this is going to challenge your relationship and it's going to challenge your ability as an independent human. Even if we're in wonderful relationships, 
we're still independent humans. As a patient, there's a toll that all the treatment and the drugs and all the things take on you. And as a caregiver, you just took on all the things. Yeah. For someone on the outside, no one knows what your day-to-day life looks like. And when you have that positive outlook that you project out, people take that to mean everything's okay. When we're really just hanging on by a thread, right? whichever side that you're on. And for the caregiver, I think it's even more difficult because you're going to work, you're doing the caregiving, you're taking on all the extra things at home. So it's not just the caregiving piece it's the chores it's the managing the finances it's the all the things right and I know one of the things that you talk about in your book is how wonderful Howard was at managing the finances and being such a good like steward of all of that and then with this bipolar for anyone that's ever had the experience of knowing someone with any kind of substance challenges they're erratic and that erratic nature is anxiety and stress inducing and it's really challenging and it challenges our relationships and it challenges us personally and I know you talk about talking with someone and going down that process and no one understands because we're all so individual and our relationships you know how many people have you seen get divorced and people are like oh but they were the perfect couple And even when you are the perfect couple and you have such a great relationship, marriage is hard. Yeah. Add a catastrophic illness. Yeah. (laughs) And then you had a catastrophic, not a catastrophic illness, but you ended up with melanoma, which is also cancer, which raises all the same distress because that came in like in the middle of this time as well. Yeah. At the, um, Six months before Howard passed, we had been on vacation in October and I was out, of course, I'm a sun worshiper and I'm out on the beach and the balcony overlooked the beach. So he would come down in the late day because he couldn't really be in the sun that much. So back and forth, we sit in the shade, but my legs are getting dark and I noticed a spot on my right thigh and I'm like, well, that's weird. But it was like, it was symmetrical. It was smooth. It was no discoloration. It was just kind of like a bump that you might have like a like let's say a pimple that's coming out that's raised, but it's not red or anything. And so I said, it's just strange. And so I told him, I said, I need to talk to your um, dermatologist and see. And he goes, yeah, he gave me the number. So I called and of course, like most dermatologists, <laughs> it takes forever to get in. So I got in and she took stuff out, you know, she was looking and she goes, you're very moly. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, that's just some blonde, blue eyed, you know, I just am, you know, and I've been in the sun a lot. And she goes, well, there's some that are suspicious. I'm going to take this, but I don't think it's anything. And she called me a week later. Well, she called home first and Howard answered. And I said, yes, you can give him the information. And apparently he said, you got to call her. He goes, I cannot tell her right now. He was in tears. And she called me and she said, well, good news is, is all those I thought were pre or nothing. So she goes, they're just small. I said, okay. So the bad news is, is the one on your leg is melanoma and my heart kind of stopped and then the f word came out again of you've got to be effing kidding me i don't have time for this and she goes well we'll make time i went in back in a couple days later and she said so what we do is we take some out we check the edges then we'll do further surgery so i'm in there and 
she said, so I think you're going to be okay because your edges didn't look bad, but we've got to do this. And she said, even if they come back clean, we've got to cut, you know, three inches around and three inches deep. Like, all right. She goes, do you want a plastic surgeon? It's on my upper right thigh. I do not wear shorts anymore. You know, I don't, I really don't care. You know, I don't care if I have a scar. It's what it is. She took it and she said it was an amelanomic melanoma, which I tell people about all the time. It's not the typical melanoma. And she said, this is what people die from because they don't know it's melanoma. They don't know right away. She took the edges that she needed to. And thank God I had gotten to her early and they were clean. And of course, Howard's oncologist was like, what do you mean you have melanoma? He goes, okay, you need this, you need this, you need this. And I'm like, okay, let me get all the facts in and I'll talk to you too. And I said, I go, by the way, anything happens to me? I said, I get to come to you. I said, I'm grandfathered in. I know you're not taking a lot of new clients, but you know, we can both come at the same time and make it easy. So he's like, don't joke about this. I said, no, I said, I got to joke about it because right now I'm scared. And Howard was scared too, because he knew he didn't have a lot of time left and he did not want to leave me behind. Luckily they did, they took what they had to, and there were still no more cells. I was lucky and I get checked all the time. Um, and so far I have been melanoma free now for almost nine years. The fall after Howard died, I went to get checked and she goes, well, there's something here suspicious and I'm going to take it, but I, you know, I think it'll be okay, but let's just look at it. She goes, I don't know. She goes, it just looks odd. Driving in the car on the way home, I'm in tears coming down my face. Cause all I could think of was where's my support. Yeah. Sorry. So luckily it was nothing and it still remained nothing. You know, I still get checked and I tell everybody, God, you know, I'm out in the sun and I've got sunblock on and, you know, and I have a lot of friends that are still sun worshipers and they've been okay and they get great tans and I'm jealous because I miss tan legs. If that's the only price I have to pay, I'll pay it. I don't need it. I've been fortunate because I was always, I was a child of the 60s and we used baby oil with iodine, laying on aluminum foil so we get more reflection. I mean, it was ridiculous, but we got crystal <laughs> one time on me thinking that would be faster. Well, I, I couldn't do baby oil as a kid because I would be like a crisp. We ended up, it was funny, I was down the beach and I was using sunblock all the time and I got like a nice tan on my arms and shoulders. I'm very careful with my legs and my face and my neck and everything. And But I got a tan. It was like, you're so tan. I go, don't tell my dermatologist. But it's like, honest to God, I mean, I'm going to be at the beach. I'm, I'm going to be in the ocean. Put stuff on and I constantly was putting, and I did not get burned. Not one. I do tan through the sunblock. So it was kind of funny. I was like, so she goes, she goes, you got tan lines. I know. I'm sorry. My, you know? my bathing suit is a tankini underneath with a long sleeve rash guard <laughs> and shorts. My yeah. husband calls it 1940s prude. Yes. <laughs> but I don't have to worry about my sunscreen washing off. I know. I know. <laughs> and I still get tan through the shirt. That's right. disturbing. I know. That's a little <laughs> scary. Yeah. So I'm, you know, that was scary. I was lucky. I mean, I had had a breast cancer scare a number of years ago, but basically they said, it looks strange. And I'm like, well, I'm, that's not good. So they're like, well, we can do a biopsy or we can just take it out. I'm like, well, take it out and then biopsy it when it's out, you know, and they did. And it turned out to be just a mass of weird cells, but it was nothing cancerous. So I was lucky then too. So I, I bear my scars proudly. The fact that there was detection and we did get it taken care of, you know, when there's two of you going through it, it's kind of, it was really, really hard. It really was. That month over the holidays, it was tough. 
was very tough. We got through it. Last month, we're good together. But as as a caregiver, when people are going through this, like you said, there's no norm. There really isn't. You have to make your own norm. And what we looked at was people would say, what can we do to help? I said, okay, if you come over our house and he's tired, he goes up to bed, don't get mad. Or if we're at your house and we have to leave, don't get mad. Or if your kid has a cold, we're not coming. So a couple of things like that. And the other was when you're feeling good, take the time and go do stuff. I mean, we took amazing vacations together, which I have great memories of. Yes, he had to rest during those vacations, take an afternoon nap, and I'd go exploring and then come back and have all the restaurants set up for us for dinner that night. We made it work for us. Was it ideal? No, but man, it could have been a lot worse. It really could have. But again, I was fortunate that his attitude was so good, which made my attitude good too. People would always ask, and it's the worst question anybody can ask when they're told their friend or somebody has cancer, like, are they going to die? And my biggest answer is always like, not today, not going to happen today, get to tomorrow. And that's always been my answer in that. And, you know, actually just don't ask it. Somebody asked one time about one of my friend's daughters. Well, is she terminal? I'm like, well, we're all terminal. <laughs> we're not, we're great. It just, it just depends on when we're all there. You know, I think if anything else, education for people that aren't dealing with this to see what's going on. Yeah. I love that. I love that response of not today. Cause the reality is we have no idea. You could get hit by the proverbial bus tomorrow right. and be perfectly a hundred percent healthy. Exactly. To me, that's my big takeaway with all of this. Just be present for these people and realize the caregiver is going through more than you think. And I always, say you should ask but sometimes you're so exhausted you can't even ask like I mean what to ask for right now yes and the knowing what to ask for sometimes we're just so overwhelmed we don't know Mm -hmm. I don't know what I need I know just need to go to bed the best thing one of my friends ever did towards the end she goes I know you don't want to go out to happy hours we're bringing it to you so 10 of my friends came over with their dirts and wine and we hung out for a couple of hours and some hung out longer and some had to leave every other Sunday I had another two friends that came over we would sit and just drink wine and just talk and Howard come in and chat with us or go up to bed and it was I was able to be there and his thing was too and I think also for the cancer patient is to try not to be selfish of your caregiver. Howard was not. He was always like, you're going to need your friends. You need to go out. You need to go do these things. When I'm not here, you need your friends. They need to be a part of your life. And I've always been really good about being with my girlfriends or other friends and all. And that's what I try to tell people. This is why my friends are so important to me. They were my lifeline when he was gone. You know, I have family too who were wonderful. They were really right there to be there. So I had people to hang out with when I needed to talk. And luckily I have such a big group of wonderful people. I had different people to call. So I didn't have like two or three that were like inundated. Keep people in your life as a caregiver because you're going to need them later. You know, you may not know what to tell them now. You may not know what to do now. You're going to need them at some point. Absolutely. And I love the traveling and taking advantage of the time that you had to make memories. I think that that's so amazing to do those things and have those experiences and have those memories to look back on. I really urge people who are maybe not facing this that are listening 
to do those things now. Yeah. Take the trips. Take the trips while you're healthy and young and take the time off from work. Like work is work. Take the time to make memories and spend time because we don't know. No, nobody does. Yeah, we have no idea what tomorrow holds yeah. in store. Well, this doctor said one thing to me and I've always used this for everybody and it sounds weird, but cancer is a gift because it allows you the time to plan to do some things you might not have done. It allows you the time to say the things you might not have said. There's never a regret. Everything that you've done what you could do other than other types of passing that are a car accident, something happens, something very tragic, and you didn't say those things, well, you need to learn to treat every day as a gift. And that's why as sucky as cancer is, it is a gift in a way because you look at things differently and you respond to things differently. And you realize that this may be the last time I say this. And it's like, oh, tomorrow I get to say it again. <laughs> to look at it, if you can look at it that way, once you're through the shock of everything, yeah. if you can see it in that light. Absolutely. Our priorities become crystal clear. Yeah, they really do. In my case, my husband and I got married after my fourth chemo treatment. We had been together for many years, mm -hmm. but that just was not up on the list until I was diagnosed. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, your doctors are on my insurance plan. And I was like, great. I have my own insurance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, why are we having this conversation? Yeah. <laughs> I'm very grateful for that because relationships can go one of two ways yeah. with a diagnosis. They can become deeper and more grounded or they can become more disconnected connected. Exactly. In your case, you were really committed. And even though there were days that were really hard, we all have days that we might want to, you know, peace out. Yeah. But then we come back and say, no, this is important. And this is my choice. And I choose to stay here. And I think that that is really beautiful. So thank you so much for sharing your story. I love sharing these experiences with people because I think it's just really helpful for others to hear hope. There's always hope. And I really appreciate you having me on and letting me tell my story. And if anybody wants, you kept mentioning the book. It's not a huge book. It was something I did when I was running for Woman of the Year with LLS. I still have a number of copies. If anybody would like one, reach out to Jen and I'm happy to just mail you one. If you'd like to, I'm, I don't ask for money for them, but if you'd like to do something, if you wanted to donate to Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, whatever little change you have or anything, that would be great in lieu of that. But a number of people that heard my story said it came, it was very helpful to give to somebody going through it as the caregiver because they saw that somebody actually survived getting through this and, and not always pretty, but still survived it. And so I'm happy to do that, Jen, if anybody contacts you. I so appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you as well. Thank you, Jen. Thanks again to Debbie Jo for sharing her story. There are a number of great lessons from her story. And the one I want to focus on for this week's Personal Consciousness Minute is the idea of cancer as a gift. This can really relate to any challenge happening in your life right now. For me, one of the gifts was the creation of this podcast. I became more and more curious of what others were experiencing and wanted to shed light on the untalked about topics. So my challenge for you this week is to find the gift in your current challenge. Then come on over to the Cancer Cliff Notes Facebook group and share with the group what gifts you're grateful for this week. Check back next week when I kick off Breast Cancer Awareness Month. 
with Mae McCarmo, survivor and founder of the Tiger Lily Foundation. Thanks for listening and have a great week. 